0: Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, verse 9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, And it was so. And God made two, greater, or two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and of the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and everything that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you plants yielding seed Final three verses, chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Father, How many times we've maybe thought of this chapter at school, maybe read it when we tried to do the one-year Bible. But here we are, looking at Genesis 1 as the beginning of your story. And we pray, Father, that your pen would write your story upon our hearts and cause us to see the author, reveal yourself, author, as you want us to see you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so, tonight's the night we finally start the awaited history series. Everybody longs for their story to contribute to a larger story. Everybody wants to know that their life means something more than themselves. That's the big drive behind the, our country's military all their marketing campaign, it's, it's designed to make you feel like you're giving your life to something that's glorious and has a huge mission. Something that's global, something that's going to help make things better. The military gets what humanity is looking for. And so does God. And God has his own story for us. But unfortunately, it seems to me that we Christians have completely overlooked the grand story of God. And we don't quite understand what God wants of us today. We've been walking through the forest, looking at all the trees in such detail that we see the little insects in the bark. We know what kind of tree is up there, in the, or what kind of bird's up there in the nest of the tree. We know everything about the trees, but we have no idea what the forest itself looks like. And so to help us understand God's grand, over-encompassing story in the Bible... What we are going to do in this series is take a step back and look at the whole story so that then we can go, when we get to the trees, we'll understand why they belong there and what the whole shape looks like. When we understand the story of Scripture, God's story, His story, then we'll understand the meaning of our own life. We'll understand what we're to do and what's required of us. Besides, it's a lot easier this way. Have you guys ever considered the fact that our language makes sense because words are ordered in a certain manner? I'm going to take a a phrase that you guys probably know and jumble them up together. Compare this. The heavens and God, the earth, and the beginning created. (laughs) Now try to remember that and repeat it to me. But compare that with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You could repeat that easily, <laughs> but that's often what we're doing in Bible study. And I, I don't—I'm I'm not in any means am I trying to say that other Bible studies are bad at all? But I was just thinking as we went through First John for thirteen weeks on um, our last series, what like what are we? doing if, if we don't understand what the sentence says in its proper order then why are we just taking words at random and jumbling them together and thinking we're making sense of life in christianity it doesn't make sense if you know that the sentence says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth then fine go back and take words and use look at them and dissect the words but you understand that it's, there's no point in dissecting the words until you know what the sentence says so that's what we want to do, is look at the events of the Bible in its outlined and the way it was intended to be read. The stories and the events in order, so that we see the shape of God's story. And then, when we read our Bibles, when we do other Bible studies, we can understand, I know exactly why this fits here and what this book is trying to tell me. I know where my life fits in the story of God and what I'm supposed to do. So... The story is important to understand, not just so you can understand the Bible, but because every single life and every single culture is guided by a story, whether people know it or not. Stories define the way you interpret your history, shape your present, or direct your future. And every culture has a story. The American culture story is called the American Dream And this story has twin themes. It's called materialism and individualism. That's what our story runs on. And so, if we don't understand God's story, then we're going to be engulfed with America's story, and it's going to take our minds, and everything that we choose to do is going to be driven by that story. And what's even worse is when we get to the Bible and see God's story, we're not going to understand how to read it. We're going to start reading God's story with America's story telling us how to read it. And we, you hear this all the time in the way some people interpret the Bible. They bring materialistic and individualistic ideas and thrust it into Scripture and say, Bam! This was written for America! No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's a story, and we need to understand the story, lest we become engulfed with America's story. We've been called out of that, and we have a story to live in and a place to be. For example, the way your story interprets life. um, If you're in the American story, and this is interpreting your life, then take divorce. The American story looks at divorce as a courageous personal step forward into personal growth. You don't like her? Be courageous and just... Just get rid of the relationship, you're going to progress into a new you, and who knows, there's lots of women in the pool. (laughs) And that's the way the American story tells you to handle divorce. It's a good personal growth thing if you can get the courage to do it. But the biblical story looks at divorce and simply says, tragedy. And so, the story that we interpret our lives through is going to make everything different. And so, understanding God's story is definitely important. So, we should know. The shape of the story. Our role in the story. And the third, what part of the story are we in? Take any story you can think of. It's very important which character you are, right? It totally redefines the way you handle the story. Um... All I can think of right now is the Hunger Games because that's what I'm reading. So, um, if you're President Snow in the Capitol trying to squash rebellions, your role in the story is very different than Katniss's role, right? Okay, I have a feeling not all of you have read this. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> okay, if you're the villain, your role is completely different than the hero. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So the way, you, the way you handle yourself in the story is going to change. Um, not only your role, but knowing the shape of the story helps. If you know where the climax is and you know the events that are going to come working in, you know the setting, you know how everything's going to be resolved, it affects the way you do things. Like every time I watched a 2002 World Series, the Year of the Angels one, in that DVD. Yes. Now live, I didn't know what to do with myself as they're down three runs with six outs to go and game six, they're about to lose everything. And I'm just like, it's over, it's over, rocking the fetal position. <laughs> but now that I know the shape of the story, I go watch it and I know how to handle myself. I get excited when they're down and almost out because I know that the epic comeback's about to come. Um, Also, knowing what place of the story we're at is important because if you're at the very beginning of a story, things are very different looking than when you're at the very end of the story or when you're at the middle of the story. So we need to know where we are in God's story. So, what I'm going to do, if you guys have your bookmarks now, it's a good time to look at them. You might have already observed that I have the story in six acts. It's because... God's story comes in six acts. What's the purpose of the four scenes then? Those are are movements within the act. Is it six because of the six days? No. Every story has... um, (laughs) The basic pattern of drama is five acts. And these are what they are. First you have the setting, the peaceful setting that's about to be disturbed, right? Then, the second act is you're introduced to a significant conflict. In the third act, that's the middle of the story where the action and the initial conflict begin to intensify. It starts to get really like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Then the fourth act is the climax, where everything comes to a head and the conflict has to be resolved one way or another. And then the last act is the aftermath, the fallout of that climax. Everything gets resolved, and you're usually restored to the beginning, the happy, peaceful scene, if not better, and everyone's happily ever after. That's usually how drama goes, five acts. The Bible has six acts. It has those five basic patterns, but there's one extra, and that's the stage we're in. Because we are in a mysterious stage called the church. So here's the six acts. You guys have them on your bookmarks. Act 1. The king establishes his kingdom. Keyword there is creation. Act 2. Rebellion against the king. Keyword sin. Act 3. The king chooses Israel to initiate redemption. So at this point, the shape of the story is that it starts up here, good in the garden. But then rebellion happens and we're dropping straight down. But then God calls Abraham and initiates redemption. So now, the U-curve is starting to come like this, okay? It's starting to level out a little bit. and Redemption's initiated. Act 4, um, the king, Jesus, comes to earth to accomplish redemption. We're at the very bottom now of the U. Things are as worse as they can get as the Son of God is crucified by his own creation. Then Act 5, the king commissions us to build his kingdom. And so now we're starting to go up. Things are getting a lot better. We've been redeemed. We've been restored. And things are looking up as we're expanding the kingdom. And in Acts 6, we're back at the top of the U, just where we began, in the garden, happily ever after, with God. And so the whole thing goes U-shaped. Or you could look at it like the tree of life symbolism. The tree of life in the garden, good. Drops down to the tree that Jesus dies on at the bottom, and then back up to the tree of life. And you have... The shape of the story is a U pattern. So we're on the uprising of the last, coming up to the end of the U. You get So we're almost at the end. That's where we are at. Okay. So, now let's get to Genesis 1. Act 1. The king establishes a kingdom. In Genesis 1, God's story begins with the creation of his kingdom and his commission to us to participate in that kingdom and in that story. Creation Commission. Boom! Here's my kingdom. Creation. Now you, I want you to be part of this kingdom. I want to call you into the story. Those are the two parts of chapter one. We get three questions to answer. As we enter into his story, what is the author like? We're going to see that right off the bat. He is a king, a powerful king, who creates. How does the earth provide a setting for the story? What's up with creation? What is is its role in the story? And then third, what role do we play in the story? These three questions get answered in chapter one. And they can be answered with three words. Who's the author? He's a king. What's up with the earth? How's that a setting? It's a kingdom. And then what role do we play? We are under kings. So it's the story of a king, his kingdom, and he gives the kingdom to his under kings, you and I. He entrusts it to us. And of course you guys know, we blew it. But Jesus came and gave us the same commission. He gave the kingdom back in our hands. And we are back in the story. So that's that. So let's look at the author. He's a powerful king. Genesis 1:1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is not contrary to the way we typically read things. That is not the beginning of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a title. That's an introduction that says this is what's about to happen. So in other words, in the beginning, beginning is the next seven days that follow. So we have this title. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first scene we see is verse 2, not verse 1. Titles out of the way in verse 1. Verse 2 is the beginning. And it says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So that's how the story opens, with an empty, formless earth, buried in darkness and covered with water. In short, it's a bad picture. Life cannot be on this planet. It looks useless. There's this great, if you want to call it evil, because it's life-sucking, nothing can live, it's purposeless, it's just there. By the way, waters in the Bible are often a um, a symbol of evil. You guys, when you read Revelation, what often comes out of the water? Evil. The beast, for one, comes out of the water. Yeah, evil. And then guess what happens in Revelation 21 at the new heaven and new earth? Do you remember the first mysterious verse? What does that mean? John says, I saw a new heaven, new earth, and there was no more sea. That doesn't mean bummer for the surfers, there's no water for them. (laughs) That means God won. There's no more chaos. There's no more dark, formless, mysterious evil coming out of it. matter. It's gone. God won. Finished. And that starts here in the beginning of the story. There's a bad scene. But what we see in the progressing days is a powerful king steps onto the planet and says, this is mine. And he takes the formless and gives it form. He takes the void and emptiness and puts life into it. The functionless becomes functionable. The death planet becomes life inhabiting. So, chaos moves to creation. That's what we see in the beginning. And if you haven't caught on to it yet, that those This little chapter is a microcosm of our salvation. We were dying in a chaotic wasteland of darkness. But God stepped in and took your chaos and made you a new creation. So right off the bat, we see a little outline of how the story is going to go. But now back to the creation matter. So he takes the chaos and he makes a creation. What we see is a king who's in complete control... You look at verse 31 of chapter 1. It says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. In other words, I like it now, now that I'm done with it. So the chaos is now controlled. That's why it's good. It's functioning the way God intended it to. Now, I want you to notice the two ways that God does this. Very key to understanding the rest here. Two ways. Two ways. First, God merely speaks; He just says the word, and creation mobilizes to what He wants it to do. Second, He names what just happened. For example, um, He said, um, "Let the waters separate; let there be expanse." And he called that after He said that. Separate; they separate. He says, "This one's called heaven; this one's called earth." So, he after He speaks, He names. Now, in the ancient times, a king. His word was the most powerful thing on earth. Anything a king said was taken as a direct order. He did not question it. It's not like our American presidency where Obama spews a lot of politics and like, whatever, liar, 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 liar. See if you ever do that. And then we wait around for Congress to do nothing about what he said and nothing really ever seems to happen. That's word in America. But word back then, a king had sovereign control. He spoke. He said, if you don't do this, your head rolls. And people carried out the orders. So, I mean, words were very... Big. So God here is depicted as a sovereign king. He speaks and creation listens and mobilizes. So hence you have him making a kingdom that obeys him. And then the naming. Um, names today is just what we call things, but back then names were significant. Because if you name something, it showed ownership over something. So for example, God calls Abram. He then calls him Abraham. Why? Abraham, you're mine. I own you. So naming was always a sign of dominion and power. And so God's naming these things, showing I have full control. We have a powerful king here. Now, the reason I tell you, remember that, speaking naming, those are God's tactics. Because now I want to show you pagan mythology. Though Genesis 1 is unique, it is nothing new. The way Genesis 1 is written, what I'm trying to say, is that Pagan cultures around Israel had stories of creation too. And a lot of them followed the same storyline. For example, chaotic waters in the beginning was very common in pagan creation texts. Um, the separating of heaven and earth was very common. A lot of the patterns in Genesis 1 was a very common way of writing. So, what we can do is we can see what Genesis 1 says and then what these other texts say and see what's the author trying to say. And it stands out instantly. While God takes chaos and makes control with only his words and naming, the pagan gods take chaos and make control through sex and through violence. Totally different tactics. These, these are the three basic themes you see in pagan creation texts. First of all, you see a multitude of gods, not one god. Second, you see creation as a result of the gods having sex with each other. So, mama, dada, god have sex, and the babies become creation. For example, they give birth to the sun, um, and the sun is a god. They give birth to the moon, the trees, all that sort of thing. That's how they interpret their. And then third, the gods conquer the chaos when things get out of hand through violence and bloodshed. So let me show you guys an example. Let's take Babylon, that big nation just north of Israel, around the the same time as Israel. Um, They had a text called the Enuma Elish. We we'll probably hear about this someday, maybe in college. And this basically says, this is their story of creation. And I'm quoting here from the actual text. Primeval Absu was the progenitor, that's the man, and Matrix Tiamat, that's the woman, who she uh, was she who bore them all. So, in other words, Dad God, uh, uh, Absu, and Tiamat get together, have kids, and creation is a result. All right. Now the rest is summarizing. Um, From them, other gods come out and eventually the god Marduk is born. Remember Marduk. There is a conflict in the pantheon of gods and Marduk does battle with the mama god Tiamat whom he kills and having triumphed over the demonic horde he, quote, crushed her skull. Now, some of you are thinking Genesis 3.15 there. It's a good way to go. Crushing the head of the serpent. Um, Marduk crushes the skull of Tiamat. And then it says, this done, he, he split her in two, so he cut her body in half, and half of her he set up and made the heavens, and with the other half he made the earth. And on the earth he built Babylon, the abode of his pleasure, and he makes, then he made human beings from the blood of the vanquished god Gingu, and he mixed it with, Dust and man came about. So, there you go. There was, all the gods were their creation, and all of a sudden chaos started. And what happens? The chaos is settled because Marduk kills. He kicks butt and he brings control. But watch, I mean, notice that. God simply speaks in names, absolutely no conflict, no rebellion. All powerful. But the way that the um, pagans saw it was a lot of struggle. Think of the Egyptian text. Oh, this is gross. So I'm actually going to really, really, like, make this PG version. I'll be your parent. It's, well, I just shouldn't mention it, because some people may not um, know what I'm talking about, and I would hate for me to be the introduction to this topic. So. Alright, in short, there's a God, and he... um, does some sort of sexual thing, and um, then the stuff that happens when sex happens, there's bodily fluids, it goes in his mouth, he spits it out, I kid you not, he, he sneezes it out actually, or some say sneeze, some say... And what comes out is the, as other gods, the god of the atmosphere, the god of um, order, And then those gods get together, and they have earth god and sky god. And it keeps on going down the line. Very demented, gross. That's the Egyptians. So my point in bringing that up is, do you see now what Genesis is portraying in our God? He is this all-powerful king. And no one steps up to his word and challenges it. He speaks, he names, and everything's in control. It is good. We have a good king. So now the setting. That's the king. Now the setting. Earth is a kingdom kingdom. Don't get mad at me, but this is the way it is. Genesis 1 does not tell us how God made creation. It is not intending to tell you step by step, God did this and that came about. Genesis 1 seeks to tell us why God made creation. We often look at it as an argument against bad scientific theory. When really it's an argument against bad pagan theology. That's its point. It's trying to show Israel the stupidity of pagan theologies and that God is the true God. It, they, back then, they cared nothing about what we care about. We want to know, how does oxygen work? How does precipitation? What happens to those clouds? Like, oh, we want to know how things work. Back then, they only cared about why they were there. That's all they cared about. So Genesis 1 simply seeks to say, this is why God made the earth. And what answer do we find? The purpose of creation is to host God's kingdom. And I want you to look at what happens at the very end as a hint. It's in chapter 2. We read those last three verses. What happened on day 7? God rested. God rested. Well, that's strange. Why did God rest? Was He tired? No. Because He initiated war against chaos... One without a struggle, and he's a victor. Now, but why rested? Why not God won and it was over? The author uses rested on purpose because this was a a concept in this time. Let me show you from Psalm one hundred thirty two. It says, "For the Lord has chosen Zion, that's Jerusalem. He has desired it for His dwelling place. What's His dwelling place? It's the temple, right? God chose Jerusalem for His dwelling place. And then it says, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Did Did you catch that? Rest of God is connected with the temple where He dwells. So when... Genesis says that God rested. What it means is that God came, he structured his kingdom in those seven days, and he came and dwelt in it. He rested. And so the kingdom has become a temple. It has become God's place where he inhabits. So the kingdom is a temple. Usually what you guys have is inside a kingdom, the temple is usually somewhere in there, right? People have to go, you're living in the kingdom, you have to go to the temple. But in this case, the kingdom is a temple because God is the king. He's everywhere in the kingdom, so therefore the temple's everywhere. You don't have to go somewhere to find him. He's there, everywhere, so the king makes his kingdom and he is resting in it, which means he now has complete sovereign control. And to further point this out, In the ancient times, when a king conquered a foreign land, one of the first things he would do is build a temple over that conquered land. It was his way of saying, I now own this piece of property. So God conquers the chaos, the earth is his, and he builds a temple to say, this is mine now. I dwell here. So that's the setting. The king is the author. He makes the setting of the story in his kingdom, his temple. And now he invites us to play a role in it. What role is that? Verse 28. Verse 26 says, chapter 1. Verse 26 says, let us make man in our image. Verse 27 talks about it in a poem. And verse 28 says, God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. In other words, rule it. When a king conquered a land and he built his temple, what's the very next step you would do? You would take an image of the god and set it up in the temple. But he didn't do that. But God didn't make an image of him. Of, well, he did. He made an image of himself. And he called it man, and he put it in the temple. And then he told the man, I want you to rule over it. Here, I'm the king, my kingdom, and you guys are now my under kings, and I give you control. Go, subdue, conquer. By the way, this whole subdue and conquer we'll talk about next week in a little more detail. But, um, let me do this. We hit the climax of the creation story when God says, let's make man in our image. Man is the climax. Contrast that with paganism. Man in paganism was created in all their stories. They were created to meet the needs of their gods. So they were the little slaves that brought creation to the god and said, here you go, now you're not hungry anymore. But God made creation for the man to meet our needs. We're the central point of the creation. Furthermore, in mythology, um, they depicted God in the image of man. Running around having sex and killing each other to make order. That's the image of man. But God makes man in the image of God. So it's the complete opposite here in this story. Now, consider this. The overwhelming number of words used in day six is staggering. It shows us it's the climax of the whole story. In day one, there's about 30 words used. In days three and four, it peaks with about 70 words each. You get to day 6, 150 words are used to describe day 6. Do you think the author is making a point that day 6 is big? Yeah. Six times the word creates used in Genesis 1. Three of those times take place in verse 27 alone. Let us create man in the image of God, in the image of God He created him. Male, and female, he created them. Verse 27 is also the first time poetry is used in the Bible. That's significant. Of the prior six acts of creation, God never takes counsel with himself. But on day six, when he makes man, he says, let us make man. And then, finally, of all of the creation God makes, never does he speak directly to the creation. But to man and woman, he speaks directly to them in verse 28 and gives them his own commission for them. So, That's the difference between pagan creation and God's creation. We are the crown. We have a big role to play in his story. And he's calling us to it. But, to finish, what is that role? The role God has called us to is summed up in the phrase, image of God. What does it mean that he created us in his image? I'm going to propose to you, it's not really a proposition, it's kind of the way it is, I guess. But there's, there's three meanings behind image of God. The first is that it has a royal meaning. The image of God has a royal meaning, meaning we are God's under kings to rule the earth. Alright, image in verse 28, actually it's verse 26, right? Yeah, let's make man in our image, after our likeness. Image is clarified by likeness. Which means that there's something fundamentally similar between God and man. There's a likeness, the image, there's a likeness. But what's that fundamental similarity between me and God? Is it my nose? Is it my speech? Is it my great intellectual powers? Is it my beard? (laughs) None of that. The similarity is explained in the word, let them have dominion. Does God have dominion over his creation? Absolutely. And he gave that to us. Here's my kingdom. You guys are my under kings. Here's power to rule. That's how we're in his likeness. It's a royal likeness, a rulership likeness. Second meaning Dominion is rule. Rule. Yeah. A relational meaning. (coughs) To be in God's image is to mean that man was made to have fellowship with God. If you're in his likeness, there's something between you and God that nothing else in creation has. An ability to fellowship. As Augustine, one of the famous old, old Christian writers, said, very famous quote he made, he says, We are made for God, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. It's part of the image of God. We are made for Relational fellowship. And then the third meaning of image of God, it's a missional meaning. And here will be expounded more next week, but this is the big applicational one. The missional meaning. As God's underkings, we are to subdue the earth by filling it with other God image bearing underkings. We're to subdue and fill the earth. So God takes man. You're my image. You're a reflection of me. Go out to my creation and spread it. Spread my name. Spread my fame. Well, of course, Adam didn't do that. He didn't get out of the garden before he rebelled against God's kingdom. So then what does God do? Does he give up on the whole plan? No. And of course, we'll see this in the future. But we get to Genesis 12. The story continues. He takes Abraham and gives the same commission that's in verse 28. Fill the earth. You will have families. They're going to spread all about. Father of many nations. And take my image there. Fill my kingdom. Does Abraham do that? Abraham, well, maybe he does. He tries. He's doing good. But then Israel does what? They fail epically. In fact, Joshua 18, verse 1, says that they subdued the land. Same word here, subdue the land. They subdued it, but guess what happened? They couldn't keep it. And they had to be kicked out. And then finally Jesus came. And he gave the same commission to us. Fill the earth and subdue it. Right before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples... You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the what? Ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You're going to fill it. My witnesses. Could that possibly be a ring and echo of my image bearers created in my image? And you're going to go and fill the earth. You're going to spread it. And so that's our rule still today that we're in the image of God, it still has a missional meaning. We have the 1 verse 28 commission to go have dominion over creation and to fill it with more image bearers of Christ. To bring rebels who have walked out of the kingdom back into the kingdom. Do you see the great grace of our God? What kingdom takes its rebels back? Not the capital in Pan Am. Not anywhere in history. They slaughter rebels. But God sends us to the ends of the earth to bring them back. That's why we believe in missions. That's why we help support Jeff. That's... That's why we... He doesn't know that. And he listens to our podcast. Hi, Jeff. That's why... <laughs> that's why... Um, anyways... I forgot what I'm saying now. So there we have it. So in conclusion, God is a king; creation's His kingdom. We're His under kings, and He wants to spread His name through His kingdom. But of course, we failed. And rather than ruling the earth, or rather than ruling creation, we've raped creation. Yeah. <laughs> we have abused creation. <laughs> rather than subduing the earth, we've subdued one another. Rather than having dominion over the world, the world has had dominion over us. Epic failures. But Jesus comes to fix this. And he comes and gives a new commission to us. And says, God has given me all power and authority. Go now and make disciples of all nations. Go and rebuild my kingdom that I died for. And bring the rebels back in. So... That's our role in the story. We are His image bearers and we are to restore the kingdom across creation. Let us pray. Father, we ask that You give... You give us that heart to bear Your image across this world. Whatever our world is wherever you have us. We here at Tree of Life, Father, choose to expand your kingdom wherever our influence is. So God, may we be those who spread your fame, who spread your name, spread your glory. And God, I pray that we also see rebels return to the kingdom. Help us embrace this role and empower us for it, Father. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Are right, you guys have-